0: Hello, welcome to another episode of the Unauthorized Disclosure Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Gastola, and I'm joined by the show's other host, Rania Kallick. Hello, Rania. Hey, Kevin. This week, we're very pleased to have on our show Ryan Devereaux, who is a staff reporter for The Intercept, and uh, The Intercept and their team of reporters, uh, including Jeremy Scahill, uh, just put up this incredible range of reports on these documents that they've called the drone papers from a whistleblower within the U.S. intelligence community. So we're going to be talking about the story that Ryan Devereaux wrote and uh, maybe some other stuff related to the drone papers. So thanks for being on the show, Ryan. Thanks for having me. So the first thing, I guess, is to just get into your story, because uh, there's a, a range. You know, it's dealing with everything with the U.S. drone programs, dealing with stuff in Yemen and Somalia. But particularly, you focused on the stories of, of what's going on. Uh, you p- focused on a period of time in an operation in Afghanistan and what is happening, what happened in that period. So can you get into your story?
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, so my story is uh, it's called uh, "Man Hunting in the Hindu Kush," and it looks at this special operations campaign in northeastern Afghanistan, right on the border with Pakistan, uh, in the provinces of Kunar and Nuristan. Um, you know, it's, it was a campaign aimed at sort of uprooting the remaining Taliban and Al Qaeda elements that were that had taken up uh, refuge there, um, and the focus of the campaign was, was really to capture or kill specific individuals, so each mission was launched uh, with an objective you know at, at the at, at the forefront of the mission objective being an actual uh human target, and the hope of the missions being to kill that person or or capture that person. And so the documents sort of detail how that whole campaign went down. And they look um, at numbers of – reports on numbers of raids and numbers of airstrikes and – and then it was sort of assessments of how the campaign was going at different times, and and how it, how it looked at the end. Um, and according to our source, you know, who's familiar with these these kind of high value targeting operations in Afghanistan, in a campaign like Haymaker, uh, the airstrikes would be you could carry them out with any sort of aircraft. But he said that uh, you know nine times out of ten, it would be a drone strike. Um, the documents reveal in, in looking at how this campaign ultimately played out, is that in the case of raids—I'm oh, sorry, I had an e- email buzz there—in uh, the, in the case of raids, uh, on the ground, uh, the Americans were able to capture dozens and dozens of people, people who could conceivably be, you know, um, taken to a base, interrogated, and potentially, if they—if if they Weren't the people that they were looking for, they could be released. Of course, that's not something that can happen in the case of a uh, airstrike or drone strike, whatever, what have you. What have you. Um, and so, the, the 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 sort of disparities between the number of people that are killed in the raids and airstrikes is one of the things that really jumps out in this set of documents. So, when when the U.S. forces will. Uh, capture or kill the person that they're actually going after for after in, in their records, that person will be deemed a jackpot. So the, the ratios that are presented in the documents are, are, jackpots to, you know, number of operations, um, conducted. And there's a second, there's another set of, of figures that are also in that included in the, in those sort of uh, assessments. And that's the number of enemies killed in action or, or what they call EKIAs. So, the airstrikes will be aiming to take out a specific person, hopefully getting their jackpot right. And if those airstrikes hit their hit a target right, um, according to our source, if the if the person that is targeted was indeed the person they were going after, that's a jackpot. But if there were other people that were killed, he said that there's a practice of those individuals being labeled enemies killed in action, EKIA, in the in the sort of statistics that are kept on these types of things, unless evidence emerges to prove otherwise. Um, in other words, people are automatically deemed enemies killed in action unless there's some reason that gets presented um, to prove that they're not. Um, so you're guilty so,
2: until proven otherwise from your grave?
1: It, 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 that's <laughs> it's one, way to, it's one way to put it, yeah. I mean, it's a... It's pretty grim, but um, I mean, it's it's not it's not exactly shocking, um, given given some you know reporting that we've seen over the years and the way these operations play out. But what this story reveals for the first time is, is really just like a breakdown of how one of these operations actually went. And one of the one of the real striking takeaways from it is that even with a, a, you know even if it, it, Considering how much the U.S. was pounding this area during the during this particular campaign, um, there was still almost no real, tangible impact on the, the thing that they were trying to achieve, which was uprooting the Taliban and Al Qaeda. Mm. Um, you know, at, after two years of these operations, it, the documents include a sort of assessment of Haymaker. The, the name that's the name of this campaign: Haymaker 1.0, Haymaker 2.0. And by, by 2013, you know, 2011, they were killing, uh, according to the documents, approximately one al-Qaeda target per year. By 2013, w- it was still only a handful of al-Qaeda figures that they were hitting every year. They were killing a tremendous number of people. You know, a, 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 it seemed, from the documents, a good number of them being sort of locally-minded uh, insurgents. But they, but they weren't doing much to, to really uproot uh, al-Qaeda. So, you know, it leads you to really ask, like, what, what, was, what was the real—what did this really achieve? Um, you know, reports now indicate that uh, something that the, the, the al-Qaeda presence in some of the valleys that, that this campaign focused on specifically is greater now than it was in 2002 so when, when u s forces came to the it came to the provinces it came to these two provinces, and so it, you know it's, it's it's a really um it's it, it's a story it's a it's a campaign that tells us i i believe a lot about what the what the sort of u s experience in Afghanistan has looked like
0: so we're going to be according to president obama we 're going to leave or he wants to leave five thousand or more troops it appears in Afghanistan.
2: Yeah, stellar timing, by the way, with the with the release of the story.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that that I know it might look like it, but that was definitely non intentional. I I was uh, on the way to the office yesterday morning, real early, so we could publish. And I was in the cab, and I saw that story. I mean, I knew that you know there have been stories in the in the preceding days the administration was considering that sort of thing, um, but certainly uh, didn't know that he was actually going to like the story broke yesterday morning that he was going to announce it yesterday the same just a few hours after our our stories went up so i mean that was it was just kind of (laughs) surreal
0: so take a moment and just focus on this because this got quite a bit of attention and i and i think it's a very stark figure and i think you were sort of you were getting at it in your explanation of the story but you know there are hundreds of people that were labeled uh these enemies killed in action versus the the 35 "Quote unquote jackpots" that the the military claimed in this operation. And I just would like you to contextualize, you know, what that really means. I mean, we we talk about yeah. targeted killings. Can we really call it targeted killings if they're not hitting their targets? I mean, do jackpots.
2: What kind of language? Jesus.
0: Yeah,
1: it's it's. I mean, so so one of the, yeah obviously one of the things that, that people have sort of seized on from from these numbers is that you know there was this five month period. Of this campaign, beginning in May 2012, so this is exact right at the time when the United States is making some some big sort of strategic shifts uh, militarily when it comes to Afghanistan, sort of drawing down the big war, the big big army type of war, and, and shifting more to what they would call as sort of, sort of counterterrorism operations and 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 the sort of training of local forces. Right, so. At this time, May, May 2012, and this is also, if you really get into the weeds on, on this period, if this is a, a, you know, a time when there's a sort of shift in, um, in uh, sort of senior commanders in, in Afghanistan, special operations commanders, but, but just be that it is May. May 2012, uh, the flow of operations in this campaign really kicks up. You see 27 raids, so 27 ground raids and 27 airstrikes. In the airstrikes, um, nearly nine out of ten of the individuals. So you have you have these twenty-seven. You know these twenty-seven airstrikes. Eighty-eight percent of them appear to have hit people who weren't the direct targets, right? Because there's each strike is for uh, each operation is designed to go after a specific person, right? So twenty-seven operations means twenty-seven people that they were targeting, right? And during the course of going after those those people who they hoped to make into jackpots they, they succeeded in doing that 19 times but they killed 155 people in in the process um and that indicates that nine nearly nine out of 88 percent of, of their targets weren't uh 88 uh, percent of the people that they killed weren't the people that they were directly targeting you know it's you can say that, like, they didn't hit their intended targets. I, I, I hesitate with that language sometimes because it's like, they did intend to shoot missiles at these groups of people, right? So that, like, they didn't, like, intend to kill them, but you can... You, can,
0: <laughs>
1: you know, they they definitely also hit a, a lot of... Killed a good number of people who weren't their direct targets, who weren't the people that they were specifically seeking, seeking to kill over this period. And, I mean, what, what's really... Sort of incredible about all of this is that let 's just assume that they that all of these people who died in these operations were in fact uh, taliban al qaeda you know some insurgent group that was attacking americans let 's just assume for a second that 's true. The documents in show that even that at the end of this campaign. It made almost no effect on 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 things that they were trying to achieve. I mean, it, it was a significant body count, but now the the the, the situation in Kunar and Nurmazan is that the Al Qaeda presence is greater than it's ever been in the history of the war on terror. You know, it's it really leaves you um, scratching your head as to what did this accomplish, really? And you know now the president describing, you know, talking about how we're going to be in Afghanistan, you know, you know, for an indeterminate uh, period of time, these sorts of operations, these counterterrorism operations, the, 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 this very sort of targeted uh, killing, if, if you want to call it that, uh, model, is it, poised to become, you know, really what the United States does in Afghanistan. I mean, it's going to be, it's going to be a lot of this.
0: So what did the source you quote the source throughout your report? Can you summarize some of what the source was saying about these documents?
1: Yeah, so I mean the, the source in the you know in in the context of the of the Afghanistan stuff is just really was just really adamant about making clear that the things that we hear about the way that these operations work the the claims that they are incredibly surgical and precise and and, and sometimes it seems like they're described as nearly infallible it, it's just it's just not the case in in reality i mean it's it's a much messier situation it's and it's far less perfect than it's made out to be and and really just the the, the source's intention is for the public to have documentary evidence in order to sort of come to their own conclusions. Because as you guys well know, you know, uh, getting any sort of documentary evidence, any any sort of anything what we, in looking into targeted killing and drone strikes and that sort of thing has been next to impossible. I mean, it's just been a tremendous challenge for journalists and human rights organizations sort of pry out the most basic information to to just assess what is actually going on. So I mean the you know the source of motivation is really to sort of try to do something, you know, to, to correct that lack of information. Um, and you know what we have is we we have a number of documents. It's by no means comprehensive, but it does give us a bit more insight and a bit more actual evidence and 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 data to understand what the United States has been doing in, you know, in the name of the war on terror for, for years now.
0: And also, you know, there's a big to do about if you were to release this information I, on the part of the US government, they make a big deal out of groups like uh, the ACLU, or, you know, you could have the New York Times filing a Freedom of Information Act request and requesting this sort of documentation that you have these reports on on operations or, or even the reports that reveal how these uh, operations are undertaken. Um, but uh, it's pretty clear when you look at this and, and you can comment, I mean, this isn't really putting anything at risk in giving us this knowledge. It just puts the Obama administration on the defensive to explain what they're doing.
1: Or it should, you know, I mean, they, their, their position has been to not not even, not comment on it, just not even talk about it at all but you're you 're right that this isn 't information that's uh, this this information that we publish is not putting it 's not putting people at risk it's it 's allowing the public to have the data that it needs to assess claims that are that are made you know claims that we are supposed to just trust and believe without any sort of without any, anything to back them up right we 've been told. A lot about how effective and, uh, and surgical these these missions are, but with there 's no way to ascertain whether or not that 's true if you don 't have evidence to do, look at you know it's human rights groups have have done a lot of work in a lot of these locations that have indicated you know something that's to, they uh, 've painted a picture that looks a lot more like what these documents are reflecting, which is a far, far less precise, far less surgical you know, program. I mean, it, that, that definitely seems to, a lot of what has been reported by those sorts of groups and by journalists over the last few years looks a, a lot more um, like the case, you know, now that we have some documents to look at.
2: Yeah, I thought it really interesting the speaking of like people saying, Yo, this is putting people at risk. There was like this, these two criticisms simultaneously that like, whatever, this is not new stuff. Like we already knew this. Um, Like, and also like a lot of the same people were like, this is putting people at risk. I'm like, well, wait, if we already knew that, I I don't understand.
1: (laughs) Right, right. I mean, I'm, I'm always frustrated with that. The sort of well, we already we already knew this um, argument. When it's like, well, we have had a lot of you know leaks, uh, like you know, admin, administration officials saying things about programs, right. and no, no, no sort of proof, you know, no way, yeah. no, nothing tangible to look at, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so there, there has been a lot of great reporting that's that's sort of just you know helped to build a, a kind of a picture of, right. of what. What sort of operations we're looking at? What's what's what sort of thing we're describing here? But it's still it's still quite opaque. And I mean, this uh, w- our hope is that these documents go you know help to. Paint a more accurate picture. There's still so much that we don't know. I mean, what we have right here in these documents is, is a sliver of, of a glimpse of what the military's program looks like. This has nothing of what the what the CIA's program looks like. What it's looked like in, in Pakistan for years. I mean, that's still a, a huge unanswered question. Um, but you know, it's it's the, the criticisms that this is going to. I don't I don't see these documents putting anybody at risk. I, I see it informing the public. And I, th- I think that what this individual did in releasing them was, was, a, was a huge public service. I, I think that that is, that is pretty, pretty abundantly clear. And, you know, if and people are going to say that we already knew this well, we have confirmation now. And that's important. There's a big, there's a big difference be- between sort of, uh, you know, anonymous uh, claims and, and, and actual
0: documents it just doesn't make sense that a whole team of you know, reporters, you know, stellar people that work at the Intercept would, you know, waste their time on stuff that they already knew if uh, right. there wasn't something groundbreaking to, you know, these these documents that you were able to put out. So another issue that's raised uh and and you sort of I, I guess it sort of is raised in your report but on uh, the large scale of, you know speaking about the the drone papers in general, you bring attention to this thing of uh, of killing all the people who are on these lists rather than capturing them and uh and Jerry Scahoe was able to get a quote from uh the former head of the defense intelligence Agency, Michael Flynn, where you know he's expressing anger about how people are being bombed instead of captured and interrogated. So can you, can you address this issue just a little bit?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a common sort of complaint among, among a lot of military folks is that you end the chain of intelligence by blowing people up. I mean, it 's pretty it 's pretty common sense you know you get a lot more out of uh, a person who is alive um, you know than a person who is just you know reduced to nothing if you destroy the person you destroy their home there 's just not a lot of information that you can cultivate um, if you have them in your uh, you know if if you take possession of a person and can interrogate them there 's certainly a Far greater opportunity that you'll learn something. Now, you know, with some of these, some 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 of the motivations behind that uh, that sort of criticism, especially from, from certain elements of military folks, is, is that leads to a sort of um, desire to see more detentions, places like Guantanamo mm-hmm. continuing to exist. You know, the ability to really, you know. Um, really interrogate people, you know. So it's it's a bit of a double edged sword, but it, there, I mean, there is a there is a strong sort of contingent of, of people in that world who do believe um, that just killing people is not the best way to go about conducting war. And I should add that there are also people who believe that, you know, if if we are going to do these things, if we are going to be in war, if we are going to be in conflict. then we need to be strategic and we need to play by the rules. And so, you know, you can also imagine scenarios in which the United States, if it takes prisoners, abides by, you know, international law, interrogates people, you know, uh, legally and releases people who shouldn't be held captive. I mean, that's that's there are for sure people who advocate for that as well. I mean, so it's a there's a range of opinions and, you know. I, it seems that the uh, the folks who would really just like to see, you know, just drones taking people out, um, you know, and nothing else is is a, is a sort of diminishing population, or at the very least, it, it's, a, it's a contingent that's under uh, attack in, in those sorts of circles.
0: Yeah, uh, this is something. If you go back uh, a year or two, you, you had people who were you know, proponents of torture like John Yoo, I think, raising this issue of how we're, we're killing people instead of capturing them now. And right. So, so it has been a, a sort of a former Bush administration officials go-to <clears throat> argument. Um, now, the last question that I have for you is when, when you were looking over this, I mean, you, you bring attention to this, The Intercept does with this visual glossary that uh, Josh Bagley put together – um, looking at um, the different terms that are used for these drone operations. I mean, h- how did you react to some of these things? I mean, one is even striking in your own report. I mean, they actually do they actually call it a civilian casualty event? Um, or was that yeah. was that your language? I mean, they don't do anything to no, they they celebrate know. it when it happens or like hold a religious prayer. So that's kind of a weird way to determine to it, in my opinion.
1: Yeah, I mean... Yeah, it's at some level, uh, uh, some of this stuff is not surprising. You know, if you if you do uh, enough reporting on military stuff, you kind of get just accustomed to reading this this sort of language, right? But you know, there are other things that you know you come across in the documents that you know, especially early on when we're we're going through them, it's just like sort of surreal sounding descriptions, like. You know, especially in the in the, the stories on the ISR study, the Pentagon ISR study, the, the, these are the stories that like Cora Courier did a did a great job reporting on. Um, you know, they describe things like attempting to achieve the persistent stare. You know, like the, the the idea that the military would like to be able to not have what they call blinks in in their sort of. Um, Surveillance patrols, for for lack of a better word, they they want to have what they call a, a persistent stare, which is, like, you know, sort of has an eye of Sauron creepy sound to it. And you know, there is a good amount of language like that. And I mean, jackpots oh. was jackpot was something that I hadn't heard until yeah. I started working on these documents. Um But it is, you know, mm-hmm. there's, there's a whole vernacular to, to this stuff.
0: All right. Well, uh, I'll just make one point, and uh, maybe you'll have something to add to it. But I'll understand if you don't. Uh, you know, just to say that, like, this is due, this is being done at great risk to this source. Uh, that it, it, you are explicit; the intercepts explicit in all of their reporting that there has been this, as I've talked about on this podcast, as many journalists at the intercept, you know, dealing with Edward Snowden, have talked about. There is this aggressive crackdown by the Obama administration against sources and 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 against people who come out as whistleblowers and that's just something that people should really keep in mind as they appreciate the reporting um these documents that are up at the intercept
1: yeah yeah I agree I mean it, it a human being made a decision to do this um and I think that people need to really keep that in mind and think about what it would take for you to do something like that you know I think that's I think that's really important to
0: remember well, thank you for giving us your, your time, and uh, you know I wish you the best. I mean, looks like there's a lot of impact that the drone papers stuff will continue to have um, in the coming weeks, so uh, I hope it continues to send some shockwaves.
1: Uh, I sure hope so, too. Thank you so much for having me, guys.
0: Hello and welcome to the discussion portion of the Unauthorized Disclosure Podcast. I'm Kevin Gostola. Ranya Kalik is back with us. Hello, Rania. Hey, Kevin. And we're going to be going through some of the latest outrages of the past week. And particularly, uh, we did updates last week on Israel and uh, executions of Palestinians. There seem to be many, many more of these in the... Uh, weeks since we had this uh, discussion, so uh, update us on what's going on.
2: Well, um, so there's this continuing escalation. Um, it's on, well, it's continuing. Um, up to 44 Palestinians. I think now it's 45. It could be even more than that. It's like it feels like every hour a Palestinian's being shot dead. Um, but I've been killed by Israeli forces. I believe, like um, I believe, maybe eight is, seven or eight Israelis have been killed. Um, there have been like over 4,000 Palestinian injuries and like a few dozen Israelis have been injured. Um, and basically, what's happening is there's been a couple of palestinians have been um have carried out these knife attacks um allegedly at least like where they've stabbed people and it has happened um mostly in occupied East Jerusalem and some in the west bank um but more more in occupied in the in east jerusalem area um and so Israelis are going nuts and um they're basically like the entire state is just like in vigilante mode um and so Israeli officials are encouraging um, are encouraging like the population, the Israeli Jewish population, to like bring their guns with them and just shoot Palestinians dead if they see them brandishing a knife or a screwdriver or anything. Basically, so that's what's been happening. Is every day it's like, uh, you know, another Palestinian youth maybe carries out an attack or another, um, or or maybe tries to or doesn't even. In some cases, it seems like they're just saying that they were armed with knives, but there's no actual proof that they were armed with anything. And actually, this morning, um, a Palestinian was shot dead in Hebron. Uh, And the um, the Israelis immediately said, oh, this person tried to attack a soldier with a knife. Uh, Or no, no, I'm sorry. A Palestinian was shot dead by a settler in Hebron. Um, So not a soldier, a settler. And then video footage emerged um, showing a, a soldier, like, basically trying to, like, planting a knife on the... It looks like the soldier's planting a knife. You can't really tell. It's a really grainy footage, but... Um, It looks like the soldier's planting a knife on the Palestinian man. Uh, So, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if that's what's taking place. It's kind of like the drop gun, right? Like we see that happen here in the U.S. with police um, dropping guns on suspects after they've been shot. Uh, So, yeah, that's I mean, I mean, it's really awful what's taking place because the violence just doesn't seem to be an end to it. Israel's escalating it like to an extreme degree with, with just incitement. And now you've got Israeli officials talking about deporting the families of Palestinians who use knives against Israelis, deporting their families to Gaza. So, I mean, if you ever thought, you know, or questioned whether Gaza might actually be a prison, well, it's a prison. Um, and so they've been demolishing the homes um, of people, of Palestinians, like the family homes, um, of Palestinians who've been killed after carrying out, like, allegedly carrying out attacks. And I say allegedly, not because I think that none of these attacks are taking place. They certainly, Like, some of them certainly are, but, um, but i do you know it's, I, you know it 's israel we 're talking about uh israel the israeli officials aren 't exactly known for telling the truth um, they 've been caught in many lies uh, and so in some of these cases you know, it's clear that at the very least, these people are being shot when they pose no threat. Like, the other day, somebody was shot when he was running down the stairs after he stabbed someone. So like, they're being shot when they're running away when they like, clearly, like, and they're, you know, it's, they're not gonna, they're, they're you don't need to kill them. Like, they're being shot dead. Um, and they're being and, and police and, and c- citizens are being encouraged to do this by the Israeli government. Um, there's also another aspect to this that I'd like to point out. And that is that the media in this country again, I mean it is so typical, but again is just completely derelict in its like duty to to give any context to why Palestinians are doing this so I- Israel's doing a really good job of framing this as just like irrational Palestinian violence, and the media is going along with it to the point of the New York Times our, our friend Jody Rodorran over at the New York Times, the Jerusalem Bureau chief, um, wrote an article uh, basically blaming they say basically saying that Palestinian. Palestinian youths are being fueled to um, to take to carry out the like to stab Israelis um, by social media. Like they're being inspired to do it by Facebook, <laughs> um, because they're seeing like videos of 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 Palestinians being wounded and injured. Um, and so that's what's it like. It's it's so it's just it's so ludicrous. Like and at one point they're you know Wait, Palestinians. Yes.
0: Did, did so, I hear that correctly? Yes. They're, they're seeing like crimes against humanity, and they're incensed and angry and yeah like but she that. doesn't
2: like but well, she doesn't like put it in that she's like being, they see like one video of a palestinian being assaulted like but the of course she like whitewashes what's on the video right but yeah they see palestinians being disrespected but on social media she even like she even goes and interviews two israelis who work for like propaganda outlets um like think tanks she interviews these two israelis about palestinian society to find out why palestinians are carrying out attacks um which is like ludicrous like why don't you go talk to palestinians if you really want to know um and of course the israelis she speaks to paint this outrageous picture this one woman calls palestinian adolescents who are doing this she calls them um like an octopus with many hands but no brain <laughs> um so yeah, these like brainless Palestinian adolescents are being like are being manipulated to to abandon very normal lives, right? To go die, to go be shot dead, um, so they can stab an Israeli or two. Like that's that's are you like that's what we're supposed to believe? Um, yeah, and then she like of course blames it on like cultural deficiencies too, although she doesn't say it exactly like that. But she's like she mentions how um, these people, the, the attackers, come from communities that celebrate um, that celebrate their deaths, and it's like what? Like, yeah, so this is the narrative that people are being fed in this country, and it's so outrageous because— I mean, hello, if you want to talk about incitement or what's, what's fueling Palestinian violence, like, look at the occupation. The Palestinians don't need to be manipulated by social media to understand that occupation is horrifying, that they live under a brutal military occupation. Like, they're not giving up normal lives, regular everyday lives, right, that are great. Um, these are desperate, desperate youths who are part of, like, a generation that's just been completely neglected um, and left to, like, defenselessly suffer under Israeli, uh, Israeli rule uh indefinitely um they're like this is desperation i mean you've got like you know the earlier this week there was like a, a couple like adolescents who who like tried to stab some israelis one of them was 13 years old the other one was 17 um and, I mean, you know, like, what gets us, like, what, you know, these are, this is a very desperate, desperate act by people who have nothing to lose, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and also, I will also point out is a couple crazy things happened this week, too. I mean, there was a video of that 13-year-old I just mentioned after, like, they were shot. The, boy, the boys were shot, like, almost immediately. Um and then the boy was lying on the thirteen, to seventeen-year-old died, and then the thirteen-year-old was lying on the ground <clears throat> uh, for for a while without any medical treatment, just gasping for breath and bleeding out. And as this is happening, uh, an Israeli settler um, starts ch- chanting at him, saying, "Die, you son of a whore! Die, you son of a whore!" And he's chanting it in Arabic. Um, and this is like a third. This is like a, the child. Um, so this is a level of like hatred that. These that, that settlers and a lot of like some Israelis harbor towards this, this completely vulnerable and disenfranchised uh, population that has no rights. Um, and it's really, really disturbing and really frightening. Um, and just utterly shocking that that can happen, that an Israeli can chant on video, you know, die, you son of a whore, die, you son of a whore. Um, but to a child that's dying and like, it doesn't make international headlines.
0: Yeah. Uh, I have this thing in front of me from human rights organizations, this letter. I don't know if you saw it, but Amnesty International's Israel branch. And then I believe I'm getting it. I'm going to get this correct. It's Salem. Oh, yeah. Bait Salem. Bait Salem. Okay. Yeah. They sent this letter and it's exactly what you're talking about. I'm just going to pull out these examples because they were calling attention to how officials are openly calling for executing people who have knives. Mm. Uh, so... You probably saw some of these examples around you. Mm-hmm. Uh, the police commander, Moshe Edri saying anyone who stabs Jews or hurts innocent people is due to be killed. The interior security minister, Gilad Arden, saying every terrorist should know that he will not survive the attack he is about to commit. Uh, MK Yar Lapid saying that you have to shoot to kill anyone who pulls out a knife or screwdriver. Mm-hmm. Uh, so very mm-hmm. explicit uh, calls for... Attacking these people, and then one thing about this media narrative, Ben Wiedemann at CNN, you'll you'll I think you'll be particularly incensed by this, Rania. <laughs> uh, he, this is part of the lead. Uh, bloodshed is not unusual in this part of the Middle East, but this particular wave of aggression, stabbings as well as a shooting and driving into crowds, is very different from rocket attacks or the orchestrated suicide bombings of the past. <laughs>
2: I mean he has a point in that yeah, it is. Like this is people are calling this a third intifada. I mean there's no context behind what he just said, but people are calling this a third intifada and um and it's like a little bit hard to say it is because what's happening is not organized by any particular group because they're they're not able to like Palestinians are so fragmented they can't. Whereas previously um, they have been able to be organized, and in Second Intifada, there were suicide bombings and, like, with rockets and stuff.
0: But yeah, the way he's saying it, it's just like, wait, what? Well, that's like, what, the about, inter-
2: what about the Israeli violence?
0: Well, that's an interesting interpretation. I mean, I under, I, I like the no, context. You're right. No, I yeah. like the context that you brought to it, but I think that most Americans would just go, oh, the terrorist techniques are changing.
2: Yeah, exactly. Whereas, like, well, wait, if, also, if we're going to talk about violence, I mean, it's incredible how Israeli violence is, like, rendered completely invisible. <laughs> always it's like that's that is that's a violence of peace like that's the violence of the status quo and that's violence is like acceptable and that violence doesn't need to be denounced or condemned by anyone whereas you know this anything a palestinian does is like you know is 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 just uh is terrorism is like you know uh, oh my god an israeli was injured it's like okay like i don't want anyone to be injured but like did like why are why aren't the fact that like three palestinians were shot dead today making a headline too you know um but yeah
0: all right so if we could go to the United States and talk about our security forces who execute people without charges or trial uh, and uh, talk about police killings and in two, in 2014, uh, this is a story that The Guardian put up this past week. I just wanted to call attention to a portion of this this project that The Guardian is doing it's called counted where they are keeping track of uh, police killings this year but they they got data that the FBI had for last year and they found that in their record of homicides by police uh, they basically are only getting data from uh, 224 of the 18,000 law enforcement agencies in the US so that's That's just over 10% of police agencies, and this is supposedly the system for holding accountable and, and keeping track of the deaths that are being caused by police departments in the United States. And remarkably, in that data, you could not find a record of Eric Garner's death, you could not find a record of Tamir Rice's death, or a record of John Crawford's death, who were very prominent cases that were, uh, part of, you know, black lives matter activism last year.
2: I mean, that's amazing. So they're basically leaving out a lot of people. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, that's a, that's a lot. I mean, that's a good amount of people. So it's their, their number is very, very low, way lower than it should be.
0: Yeah. And, uh, so they're, they looked at, they went all the way back to 2004 and did the past 10 years The other thing that The Guardian pointed out was that the state of Florida had not reported any homicides by officers. Um. (laughs) Which which is is remarkable. Uh, The
2: state of Florida has a lot of, like, (laughs) that's amazing.
0: Meaning, uh, this is the third most populous state and nobody is logging any killings with the FBI. And apparently that's okay. That the whole entire state would not report any of this activity. Um. Also, just people should know that the FBI's records, when they do take down these killings, they don't record whether those people um, were, you know, armed with a weapon or or not armed with a weapon. They're just, you know, they just put that in their system that somebody, that that a homicide took place. So there's really no way to assess what's going on. And uh, so, you know, that's why... So it's a very chaotic and hectic approach, and this is something that, as we've covered this issue of police killings, there's been a lot of criticism of the FBI's database because it's really not a system for keeping track of police departments. Mm. All right, so another story that I wanted to get into. uh, Let's do something good. Here's a good news story that happened. Uh, And uh, I guess, Ryan, you told me that you didn't know that this had taken place so the third circuit court of appeals in the u.s found uh that these muslims really should be able to these muslim americans really should be able to sue the new york police department for being targets of surveillance uh, which is a really good thing uh and they uh The Center for Constitutional Rights and this other group, Muslim Advocates, uh, were representing people. Uh, People who are listening might remember that uh, the Associated Press did these Pulitzer Prize winning stories that were about uh, the New York Police Department doing spying on uh, Islamic mosques, uh, I mean, doing the on the Islamic centers, doing the uh, spying on. Uh, student associations at universities, uh, like like Rutgers. And uh, so they brought this case against the city of New York uh, to challenge the surveillance. And initially, uh, quite ridiculously, this case was dismissed. That's why it was on appeal. And it was dismissed. I think we talked about this on our show a little bit. It was dismissed originally because uh, the judge decided that it was the Associated Press that had caused injury to these Muslim Americans and not the New York Police Department. Mm. Uh, They were the ones who reported on information about surveillance that was originally secret, and if Muslim Americans had never known they were being spied upon, there would have been no injury. Uh, Because, like, the things that are being complained about um, in in here is that uh, one of them, Syed Farhaj Hassan, uh, he says that you know, he, he's now not going to mosque as frequently because uh, he, he knows he's under surveillance by the New York Police Department. Um, he's uh, I believe he was in the military or he, he works in some kind of security agency. So he's worried he might lose his security clearance if he's seen going to a mosque. Uh, so he's just was very concerned about the fact that now the New York Police Department is spying on me and I'm going to change my uh, religious behavior. Uh, so that's part of the lawsuit. Um, oh, he was a U.S. soldier who served in Iraq. So, uh, that's one of the cases. And then, uh, you know, and also the thing that the AP had shown was that Muslim student associations, you know, were, were under, under surveillance that, uh, the NYPD had set up like a safe house in an apartment, not far from campus. And, um, the building superintendent at the, uh, at the university had stumbled upon the safe house and thought that there was some kind of like terrorist cell inside (laughs) of the university and had actually called the police emergency dispatcher to come figure out like, what are these, these agents that are like using this apartment on campus doing? Uh, So this is, this is part of that case and it was dismissed. And I think the remarkable thing to say about this uh, development with the third circuit court of appeals, agreeing that the New York police department should be able to be sued is that they reference uh, the Korematsu decision, which Mm. is a historic decision uh, where the court granted the authority to, it would have been Franklin Delano Roosevelt, and uh, the executive branch to detain and round up and put Japanese Americans in camp uh, during World War II. And Mm -hmm. so they actually say in their uh, decision That, uh, you know, today it is acknowledged, for instance, that the FDR administration and military authorities infringed the constitutional rights of Japanese Americans during World War II by placing them under curfew and removing them from their West Coast homes and into internment camps. Yet when these citizens pleaded with the courts to uphold their constitutional rights, we passively accepted the government's representations that the use of such classifications were necessary to the national interest." In doing so, we failed to recognize that the discriminatory treatment of approximately 120,000 persons of Japanese ancestry was fueled not by military necessity, but unfounded fears. And that's basically the root of all of this NYPD surveillance, that they're saying, well, we have to keep track of all of these Muslim communities because we don't know where the next terrorist is going to come from. Wow, that's... (laughs) And they're calling bullshit on that. The Third Circuit Court of Appeals is saying that's not how it works. That's not that's how. Like
2: that's, I mean, that's like a rare moment of, like, um, of, of
0: logic. And they're also saying, we've been here before. We, you know, where does it go next? Like they're, they're actually suggesting that, okay, if we carry this to its logical extension, you right. might be rounding people up and putting them in prison.
2: Yeah, and that's not such a good idea.
0: <laughs> so, um, and then the other thing that I wanted to get into before we wrap... Up this week is to mention this big development with the ACLU uh, suing uh, these two architects of the CIA torture program. Uh, they were contracted psychologists. Uh, their names are James Mitchell and uh, Bruce Jessen. And uh, non-U.S. citizens who were CIA detainees have sued... Uh, them uh, saying that these psychologists developed the torture techniques that was, that were used against them. Uh, so the, the names of the two people, there's two that are alive. There's one who's very well known and well known because he died after being tortured to death. So the estate of Ghul Rahman who had this ugly, ugly tortured death in, uh, the salt pit. That's what it's known as the, the prison in Afghanistan, uh, where horrific abuse took place. And then there's Suleiman Abdallah Salim and Muhammad Ahmed Ben Sood, who, um, who are alive and, and have sued because they were subjected to things like solitary confinement, extreme darkness, cold, noise, torture, beating, starvation, stress positions, prolonged sh- sleep deprivation, confinement in coffin-like boxes and water torture. So I'm just going to briefly go through, I hope you can handle this around It's pretty gross. um, like, go through this case of Salim. So he's from Tanzania. He was living in Mogadishu, Somalia. Uh, He was flown to Nairobi, uh, Kenya, after being abducted by CIA and Kenyan National Intelligence Service agents in March 2003. Uh, Eventually was brought to this secret prison that is in the Senate torture report as Cobalt. And while he was there... You know, while he was brought there immediately, they started to do the learned helplessness techniques that were basically conjured by these psychologists. Uh, by you know, as it describes in the complaint they they inserted some kind of an object into his anus and they they stripped him of all his clothing uh, they put a diaper on him then they put earplugs in his ears and they put a hood over his head then they put goggles and headphones over his hood and earplugs then they cuffed and shackled him and now he was totally disoriented they put him on the aircraft and then they brought him to this cobalt prison and when he was brought to this cobalt prison Uh, he was, he entered in it. The, the prison smelled like rotting seaweed. Um, he, they took off his hood and earplugs. The first sound he hears is really loud Western pop music that's bombarding his ears and making him even more disoriented. People are saying things like there's no God, no God, no God, and it's pitch black. There's this nasty smell and it's just overpowering. And then he's taken to a room and he's on chains, and they there's a ring on the inside of his tiny cell, and they chain him up to a ring. But they chain him up into a position where he can't get comfortable and sit. So he's in this weird stress position the whole time. That's extremely painful and uncomfortable. And he didn't get any food for a couple of days, uh, and then he got some like tasty broth and a bottle of water. And there, there at that time there was he still had no place to like go to the bathroom. So he's expected to just like you know do this in the diaper that he was wearing since since being uh subject to rendition from Somalia um and then the horrific torture that's dis- that 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 that's even worse than this which is uh bad on its own is that once they begin questioning him after a few days he's subject to this water dousing torture which basically goes like this where he was handcuffed and shackled after his clothes were all ripped off he's laid on this large plastic sheet then they, the sheet already has ice cold water on it. And he's laid down on top of that cold plastic sheet. And then they pour gallons of ice cold water over him, leaving him breath, breathless. Uh, they kick and slap him in the stomach or face. Uh, they, they This goes on for about 20 or 30 minutes. Then they roll him up inside this sheet and he's left lying there kind of like a corpse. And they leave him there for a little bit to freeze and shiver and then they come and they drag his body off to a room where men start yelling at him in english of like all these different things of uh personal background information questions basically like who are you what do you do you know do you know these people blah 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 and he's really this guy salim is just a trader um uh, a business trader somebody who uh you had a wife, and he was taken from her. And he's subjected to these water torture sessions. So that's pretty horrific. And they also, like, put him in a confinement box. Um, this like, really, like, like a small wooden box. Like, it's not a coffin. Like, it's actually a square box. Like, in order to get in, you have to crouch and pull your knees up underneath you. And there's, there's no space. Um, and then they put him in a coffin later, and... You, you have to keep your hands up above your head and there's no space for you to, like, move or you can't really... It, it's hard to breathe inside because you're 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 being squeezed inside of this coffin-type box. So this is horrific, but these are all things that were developed by these psychologists. Well, that
2: was, I mean, I, yeah, I don't really have anything to add. I think you <laughs> kind of went over everything really well.
0: It's, uh... I mean, it's just kind of, like, soul-sucking-type description of... Of of very brutal, grotesque stuff that we did to individuals, and I I guess if there's any reason to be gratified and pleased, it's that you know the the ACLU is giving these men who were tortured an opportunity to pursue some justice, and and I don't I don't know it's going to take a long time. I, I guess just to say that. You know, we'll be talking about this six or seven years from now if they finally do get what they deserve, but they're on the right path. I mean, I think this is what you have to do. You have to challenge these men because this is the only way that you're going to get some kind of justice because our own government isn't coming after these contracted psychologists for developing torture techniques. Yeah. So... All right. Well, uh, that does it for the show. Any parting words, around you?
2: No. I mean, I think I think we're good.
0: <laughs> All right. We'll be back for another show next week. Thank you, everyone.